Let us begin with a prayer. Let us ask the Blessed Mother to open up our minds and hearts to receive whatever the Lord, her Son, would wish us to receive. And we pray the Ave Mari Stella prayer, the Hail Star of Ocean prayer. If you know it, you can join with me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail, bright star of ocean, God's own mother blessed, ever sinless virgin, gate of heavenly rest. Taking that sweet Ave, which from Gabriel came, peace confirm within us, changing Eva's name. Break the captive's fetters, light on blindness pour, all our ills expelling, every bliss implore. Show thyself a mother, may the word divine, born for us, thy infant, hear our prayers through thine. Virgin, all excelling, mildest of the mild, freed from guilt, preserve us, pure and undefiled. Keep our life all spotless, make the way secure, till we find in Jesus joy forevermore. Through the highest heaven, to the almighty three, Father, Son, and Spirit, one same glory be. Amen. Saint Ignatius of Loyola, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. To the highest heaven, to the Almighty Three. Indeed, Saint Ignatius leads us on this wonderful trajectory that's so apropos to our day. We began by analyzing the triptych of his spirituality to realize God really is God, awesome, superabundant, ever greater, ever more. And God, the second panel, is completely made present in Jesus. And Jesus is the fullness of divinity expressed. When we want to know what God thinks and feels and how he acts, we look at Jesus. In the third panel of the triptych, Jesus says, whoever hears you, to his apostles, hears me. And we hear the voice of Christ coming through his church to guide us. We know what Jesus thinks on so many different issues by knowing what the church holds and teaches to be true in matters of faith and morals. And God is resplendent in his creation. In the words of the Jesuit poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. <laughs> Charles Piggy, the French poet of the last century, puts these words in the mouth of the Father. He says, the Father says, I am so resplendent in my creation, and I can't get over it. <laughs> God the Father is infinitely young, infinitely playful says G.K. Chesterton. And in that triptych of spirituality, seeing God, bringing these things together, you can't have God if you're not speaking about the ever greater one. You're not really speaking about God. You can't be speaking about God if you're not speaking of the fullness of revelation of God in Christ and how he now is present to us in his church, in the sacraments, and through nature. These all go together. We are refashioned by the Father. St. Irenaeus, the great giant around 150, the year 150, says that the hands of the Father for his creating are the Son and the Spirit. So the Father recreates us 
in his image. That's the Son. The Son is the fullness of the image of the Father. We're constantly recreated in the Son. It's a very dynamic notion of creation. I wasn't just created in my mama's womb, kind of a deist notion, and God started a clock, and I'm kind of going on my own now. Oh, no, constantly recreated but constantly recreated in virtue also, constantly created, recreated in my soul. The Father is so tender with us and constantly refashioning us in the image of his Son. Mm. To a purpose. If I'm made like Jesus, more and more like Jesus, I'm created to a purpose, which is to praise, reverence, and serve God, to fall in love, to let go and fall in love, and to live in love. That's what you and I are created for. Every human being is created for that, to lose yourself in love. Then St. Ignatius explains to men and women of today that God, in his noble work of salvation, of drawing all men and women into his heart to be refashioned, to be remolded, reformed like clay in the potter's hands, Jeremiah image, To do that, he takes the lowest place, and he gets down and dirty in this world. And he wants to meet us in that lowest place, and he invites us to join him in toil. He labors for our salvation. St. Ignatius is always amazed how much God labors for us, and he doesn't give up on us. God is amazing how much he's laboring for the salvation of every man and woman in the world. And he invites us to join him in that enterprise. So it will embrace suffering. And the great Catholic imagination understands that suffering is chock full of meaning. A mystery isn't something we stand outside. I don't get it. I need to get my head around that. That's a problem. That's not a mystery. A mystery is something we live within. It's so chock full of meaning, we, we don't get the half of it. <laughs> and we're always exploring it more and more. And so suffering is one of those mysteries. But we're invited into that suffering with Jesus, and we're not alone. We'll never be alone in that suffering. So when Jesus has suffering in store for Father Anthony, it's going to be an invitation to intimacy, we said. An invitation to intimacy. It's going to be a with Jesus experience. That's good. I'm going to be yoked with Jesus in the suffering, not suffer alone. That would be the lie of the evil spirit. Yoked with Jesus. And it's going to be redemptive for me and for the whole world. The world was redeemed by an act of suffering born in love. And Jesus is asking us to model the Blessed Mother, to model St. Joseph, in working for the redemption of the world and help bringing that about. That is our dignity. One of you wisely pointed out that Jesus inviting us into the suffering hopefully would invite us also fishing at times. <laughs> Very true. This life is not a bunch of suffering. This life is not to be with Jesus means, uh-oh, <laughs> here comes the crops. It's not like that. There's so much joy in this life. I mean, do you see a bent-over Jesus in the Gospels? Does he look really worn out? Does he look exhausted and angry? Is he hyper-busy? Doesn't have time for himself? I don't see that. So there's a joy, there's a, there's a ebullience in Jesus. G.K. Chesterton, the great Catholic intellectual from England, muses 
at one point in his life, he says, what was so sacred that Jesus got away on this mountain so often and had to be by himself? What was so sacred that nobody could understand it or they would have misinterpreted it? What couldn't he have shown his disciples? And he says, I've often pondered that question, and I now fancy that it was his mirth. His mirth, his absolute ebullient joy that this is all going to turn out well. His time with the Father, knowing this is going to be great in the end. Things are really messy down here below, <laughs> in this family, in that family, huh? amongst my disciples and apostles. But it's going to all turn out well, because the Father's got this. That's the attitude of someone who goes on this journey with Jesus. That kingdom meditation, he's the eternal king, and he invites us to experience the joy of recreating everything. What a wonderful gift, huh? To be in his company. By the way, our name as the Jesuits is really the company of Jesus. Compañía in the Spanish. But in Latin, they didn't have a word compañía. All they had was societas. Societas, Jesu. The so we translated it into English into the society of Jesus. But it's really the company of Jesus. And we're all called into that company of Jesus. Tonight, we ask the Ignatian question, whose side are you on? Discerning different spirits that are motivating us. This will be fun. The decision to follow radically Christ the King is not reducible to a wave of generosity that envelops and almost overwhelms our soul. It involves concrete ethical decision-making. And so it is in the life of every Christian. But St. Ignatius now reminds us that we have here the first appearance of another attractive personage vying for our attention, for our fidelity. This powerful and externally impressive creature of God is named Satan, whose name means adversary. He's the great adversary of our true God. He offers you and me a fool's gold, but a very attractive one at that and also one that avoids all suffering and pain. Now, wouldn't that be nice? He promises control over the world around us and over other persons, too. Just as Adam and Eve, after the fall, they yearn to get the upper hand over each other. It's so sad. Right from the beginning, she's yearning for Adam, and he's using, trying to powerfully control her, this mutual domination game that St. Paul redeems in Ephesians 5 when he talks about the mutual service that we should be involved in as opposed to trying to get the upper hand over each other. You and I have similar leanings to also try to be as gods if we follow his summons. And in an unstable world where there's a scarcity of resources, it's easy to try to counteract that instability with control and a, and a lust even for money. Uh, scripture says a lust of money is the root of all evil. Not money is the root of all evil, but the lust for it. Like, I need more, huh? A love of money uh, is the root of all evil. 
Jesus promises instead radical security, but only in relationship. Radical security, but only in relationship, found principally in God. There's my anchor, St. Paul says. It goes through the veil. It's an anchor that goes up. Yes, things are unstable in this world, kind of like bouncing around on the ocean. But when you have your anchor with the Father, as Jesus does, you can sleep well, as Jesus does in the boat. I suppose reminiscent of his mama's womb, huh? But there's a battle for that. Where do I find my security? Is it in relationship, this direction, and then also in this direction, loving God with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and my neighbor as myself? Or is it in this clinging to all kinds of creature comforts, huh? And controlling relationships. St. Augustine depicted this titanic struggle between good and evil, between God and Satan, light and darkness, in his classic treatise, The City of God. What we ought to add to his conception, though, of that fitful struggle, is the truth that the second person of the Blessed Trinity came down to earth to himself take on that struggle. He didn't disdain to be acquainted with temptation, to put himself, if, he, if, you, if, it, if you were, in the position of Adam again, a position where both the father and the devil were visible to him. He allowed himself to be led into the desert, we know, for 40 days, to be tempted by the evil one. And then he chose his father strongly and rightly, huh? faithful to his eternal love, to the source of his very being. And this is manifested for us under the visible form of obedience. So obedience becomes a hallmark for St. Ignatius of the Christian. Or to follow Jesus' example of obedience, which is a listening attitude. Jesus, by his obedience, chooses what is right. Whereas the wood of the tree that was wrongly chosen by Adam and Eve becomes the source of our downfall, we now have Jesus freely choosing the tree of salvation. He is the new Adam, Mary is the new Eve. And real hope has again entered the world. Thankfully, you and I are not completely alone in this ethical decision-making between God and the devil. Jesus is with us. St. Ignatius then fleshes out for each Christian the consequences of following Jesus and rejecting Satan. First, we must recognize that Satan is a liar and an accuser who tempts us always with partial truths to which we can easily succumb. He's always proposing something that's initially attractive to us. Otherwise, we wouldn't find it tempting. <laughs> but he wants us under his flag. This is a critical word for St. Ignatius, bandera, a standard. Like the standard that used to be held in, when there was hand-to-hand -hand combat, combat with swords and whatnot. You'd, uh, one person would hold the standard so that those on your side would know, would rally around the standard, and they would have a common point of focus huh, for the fight and not get lost and dispersed. So the standard was a critical piece of weaponry in battle to rally everyone to the point of strength. 
Interestingly enough, Jesus, too, has his standard, his flag, that he wishes to draw people around in battle. And so St. Ignatius says we have to choose which standard we will be under. There are two flags, then, two banderas, two standards, vying for our fealty. St. Ignatius, in a brilliant insight, puts the regional headquarters for Satan in Babylon, that place where man tried to domesticate God, building a tower that would reach up to the skies and that even God couldn't destroy. Perhaps not unlike the Titanic that men believed could never sink or break apart. Now, God didn't sink it, but its pride colliding with an iceberg did. So Babylon, with all its worldly glory and vanity, is Satan's sinner. And you shall be as gods is the mantra in this locale. In the previous meditation of St. Ignatius, the call of the eternal king it had a two-part schema. And we see that once again here, which is unusual for an Ignatian meditation or contemplation. But in the first part of the schema, we see Satan's ways to get people under his standard. And the second part of the schema, Christ in his ways to get people under his standard. In the first point there, you'll read that Satan is seated on a great high chair of fire and smoke, impressively horrible and terrifying at the same time. He's very powerful, and that's always attractive to the human being in his weakness. Satan issues a summons to his fellow fallen angels, who we know were originally good creatures, but now are twisted. And the summons is to go to every town and city and to each person in particular to enchain them. What an interesting word. First, by the desires of the flesh. We're listening into the stratagem of Satan for all men and women. Very insightful here. First, they must long for riches and creature comforts, which they think will bring them happiness. How true that is in our day, huh? This will in turn lead them to vanity, an undue concern of how the world views them and praises them for all the stuff they've accumulated or the trips that they've gone on, things like this. This will eventually lead to pride, the greatest of the capital sins, which is really an overweening sense of self. Riches lead to vanity, lead to pride. Riches, vanity, pride. That's customarily how Satan tempts us all. And I invite you to begin thinking, how does that progression play out in your life? How did it play out in Jesus' life? Well, in the temptations, sensuality. You're hungry, man, says Satan to Jesus. That stone's about the right size of a loaf of bread. Turn it into bread. You need to sustain your body, your body and soul. And Jesus says, I'm not thinking about me. It's the Father. I live from the food of the Father. My bread is to do the will of the one who sent me. And so Satan then takes him into vanity, to the parapet of the temple, the southeast corner of the outer wall of the temple, which indeed is quite a drop down into the precipice. 
of that valley and says, jump off of here. Scripture says angels will catch you. You'll get your ministry started. You've got to think about you, Jesus. You need to get this going. You're 30 years old. Let's get a jump start on this, don't you think? Come on now. Think about yourself a little bit. And Jesus says, no, 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 it's the Father. Don't tempt the Lord your God. Huh? Jesus is always pointing beyond himself to relationship. Satan's always pointing towards the me, me, me. And then Matthew records that the third temptation is pride. Huh? Just a quick bow to me, and I'll give you all these kingdoms. I am the prince of this world. You yourself say it, Jesus. And I'll turn it all over. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. It'll all be yours. Easy win, just with a quick bow. And Jesus says, no, the Father. There's one true God, and him alone shall we serve. The Father. Jesus, in his standard, you can bet it's going to be relationship-focused. First off, what's the location from which Jesus wishes to rally his troops? We read that Jesus goes to a lowly plain about Jerusalem. St. Therese of Lisieux tells us that Jesus is always waiting for us, not on a mountaintop, but in the fertile valley of humility. Isn't that a great phrase? The fertile valley of humility. We can only encounter Jesus if we practice downward mobility. Remember how he wants to meet us in those lowly, needy places of our lives that we've been speaking about? He's waiting for us there. We could say, perhaps, that Jesus is not as impressive as he is beautiful and inviting. And he invites the soul to a free following of him rather than enchaining it with selfish pleasures. Jesus beckons many persons to himself, apostles, disciples. And then after this encounter, he sends them forth to spread his secret doctrine and invite all men and women into his kingdom of freedom and love. What is new about this Ignatian vision, as we saw earlier, is that service of the divine majesty, namely praise, reverence, and service, becomes synonymous with the helping of souls. I praise, revere, and serve God by drawing other souls to an encounter with Jesus. Helping souls becomes a privileged means of praising, reverencing, and serving God. Secondly, all those who truly take Christ as their eternal king must desire, desire to be insulted at times because he was, and experience contempt with him because he was. This is a hard one for you and me, typically. But Jesus tells us that no servant is greater than the master. Remember that? If they've treated me badly, they will treat you similarly. Mm. Practically speaking, if, if one of you doesn't have someone who doesn't like you, <laughs> that's not a good sign. <laughs> if one of us here is not considered foolish or a little holier than thou or something without giving occasion for it, then we're fitting in too well with the world, not with Jesus. When one, however, chooses to experience what Jesus experiences, desiring insults and opprobrium, which is scornful reproach, humility follows. Humility is the root of all the other virtues. 
Thus, we see that spiritual poverty with Jesus leads to a desire to suffer with Christ, which leads to humility and all the other virtues. Humility comes from the Latin word humus, means earth. Huh? We, are, we have a double origin, dear brothers and sisters. We're made of the earth, God fashions us from the earth, and he breathes into us his life-giving spirit. So when you and I choose the path of downward mobility, of humility, we receive anew God's life-giving spirit. God refashions us, molds us, and enters us, draws us into more and more profound relationship, which is secure relationship. So notice now how these two stratagems of Satan and of Christ are counterposed. So exactly, point by point. So Satan says, love of creature comforts, huh? sensuality. And Jesus says, no, detachment from all those. Huh? Not clinging to anything in this world. And Satan says, vanity, undue concern about what others think of you. It's really important what they think of you. And Jesus says, no. No, if you want to follow the path under my standard, choose to accept and embrace humiliations because from humiliations comes humility. And Satan says, let's lead them towards pride where they have an overweening sense of themselves. And Jesus says, humility. At every point, they're counterposed, huh? These two standards. It's a dramatic choice with eternal consequences. And under whose standard will you and I be received? And what parts of my life are under standard? Which are under Satan's standard and which are under Jesus's? Whereas in the previous contemplation, the colloquy was actually the offering made, here we have a triple colloquy. St. Ignatius invites us to ask Our Lady that she obtained for us the grace of her son to be received under his standard. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Beautiful prayer. And then offer a Hail Mary. Then subsequently, we ask the same request of Jesus to his father and pray the soul of Christ prayer, which we know St. Ignatius made popular in the church. One time we thought he even wrote it. Then we go to God the Father and dialogue with him. The eternal youthfulness of God the Father. It's good for you to contemplate that. Reza Meritain has some beautiful phrases in that regard. We beg the grace from the Father to be taken under the standard of his Son, which frankly was the mystical experience, one of his many mystical experiences that St. Ignatius had just outside of Rome as he was coming into Rome at a little chapel called La Storta. But the father said, I wish you, son, to take St. Ignatius under your standard. How does this play out in my life? Where's the battle for my soul? I'm going to get a little practical here, to my own embarrassment. Sensuality. How does that play out in terms of Satan's standard? Where does that play with me? Where do I sense sometimes food entitlement? Uh, a right to have a dessert. I need a drink every evening. Uh-oh. 
little sensualities working in there. Uh, preferences to be around certain people as opposed to other people and following those preferences according to their personality or their looks or whatever it be. Age or reputation, whatever authority they hold. Calculating my availability towards others. The sensual, like, kind of like, um, what do I want to do? What do I not want to do? Too much of the New Orleans Saints. I love New Orleans Saints. I would figure if you're Catholic, you should love the Saints, but I love them too much, so I get a little over the top on New Orleans Saints. So I'm trying to watch too much of them, follow up on everything. I, it gets a little addictive for me. It becomes a form of sensuality I need to like keep pruned. Uh, entitlement to veg on the internet, huh? To just kind of like scroll through things. Some people like a lot of Netflix or YouTube or whatever, you know, just. And how is Jesus inviting me under his standard with regard to sensuality, so spiritual poverty? Well, it helps that I have no bank account. Uh, so I don't make any money, but I don't spend any either. I don't April 15th means nothing to me, so that, that's nice. Uh, weekly fasting, choosing to fast weekly. You should be doing something every Friday. The church's tradition has never changed on that. You can give up something instead of meat, but you have to give up something. Read the bishop's document from 1966 on this. Uh, when I get extra clothes, like for Christmas, I got a couple new sweaters. I need to replace, take out the same number that goes in so I don't keep adding to my closet, all right? Jesus invites me to that. I got to be careful in accepting gifts, uh, travel gifts also, and to surrender those to, and donated monies, huh, to give those over to the community without finding a way to pocket them or use them for my own advantage. So these are good practices that Jesus helps me live in terms of poverty, spiritual poverty also. Vanity in terms of Satan's standard, there's a temptation for a priest and for any of us to be concave. This is my own geometrical image, but like in, I'm made to be convex. In, when I'm concave, I'm registering, do you guys like me? You know, how am I doing? Do you find me smart or funny? Do you find, and I'm, I'm like registering like a, um, like a satellite dish. Like, how are we doing here? I hope you like me. That's being concave. That's vanity. I have an undue concern about what you think of me. That's the shallow Father Anthony, and I can definitely be shallow. Huh? But the, deep, the deeper Father Anthony is convex. He loves on you. I just love on you because you're worthy of love. I might not even know you, but I know you're worthy of love. And when I go convex, it's a whole different experience. Satan's always trying to get me to be concave. I take a correction from another too personally or defensively. Vanity, huh? I'm overly critical sometimes of my Jesuit brothers and community, what I think they should do. I'm worried about how my superiors perceive me. Vanity. Satan's standard. I'm worried about how I might be viewed as in ministry. 
There was a phenomenon recently where I was called the destroyer of marriage. That's a strong term. And then someone else said, I easily f facilitate, too facilely facilitate marriage. Two critiques from some two different instances that like, wow, you know, sometimes you're going to get it from both sides. The contrary to that, Jesus invites me under his standard to accept the insults. So Ephesians 6.12 is an important phrase for me. It says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. So that means I don't worry about people who are destructive to our culture. It's the spirits behind them that I worry about, okay? And so I pray against those spirits that are motivating them or people who are hurting my family or me or whatever. Our battle, Ephesians 6.12, is not against flesh and blood. That's not my problem. I tend to think it's that person. I know what they look like. Man, they're my problem. It's really the spirits behind them. And so I invite the Lord and angels to crush those spirits instead. Jesus invites me to that. And when I've been hurt by someone, I pray more of prayer like, Lord, you deal with them. I surrender them to you. Rip out of their heart everything that's twisted and save the rest. I want their good, eventual salvation. Love, St. Thomas Aquinas says, is choosing, willing and choosing the good of the other. But I surrender them to you, and I walk straight. I don't even think about them anymore. Let somebody else pray for them from now on, but just let go and walk forward. These are keys of walking under Satan's standard. I don't hold on to the grievances of the past or even the present. Jesus invites me to laugh at my mistakes, like when I broke my toe, <laughs> uh, or if I miss an appointment, or go to the store and forget my wallet, instead of getting angry, like what stupid idiot goes to the store without their wallet? To laugh at myself, and to drive home laughingly and sing and pick up my wallet and come back. Rejoicing in the gifts of others that I don't have. Rejoicing in that. Jesus is leading me under that standard in terms of accepting things that don't go right and not making a big deal of them, inserting those within Jesus. Pride. Satan wants all of us to have this sense of self-exaltation. And we put ourselves at the center, this overweening sense of self, and we need the Copernican Revolution where Jesus is my center. So I might doubt that a certain ministry can carry on well without me. They need me. I need to be needed, maybe. I hold on to sin or disappointment with myself. Uh-oh. That means I'm clinging to an image of myself, and I can't believe that when I was this old in high school, I did that terrible thing. And I still confess this thing, or I still have it in the back of my mind. Well, there's pride behind that, because I have an image of myself. I can't believe that I, Father Anthony, did that. The problem is pride. I have an image of Father Anthony that I love more than Father Anthony. Sometimes we love an image of our spouse and our children more than we love our spouse or our children. It's very dangerous. And I'm so disappointed in this person, because I love an image of them, and the reality is here. Jesus loves no images of us. He loves us, and he loves us in our messiness to love us out of our messiness. Tremendous damage is caused in families by our loving 
an image of the other more than the other, my loving an image of my brother Jesuit more than I love my brother Jesuit. We're called to, Pope Francis says, smell like the sheep, and you could take that even a step further and say we should smell like the shepherd. <laughs> we should be covered in the merciful blood of Jesus. We need to smell like Jesus. That is so pleasing to the Father when we smell like Jesus and his merciful blood is constantly flowing over us. I often give as a penance for confession. You may not want to come to me now, but I give the Divine Mercy Chaplet and I say, pray it experientially. You're praying to the Father and you're praying to the Father for the sake of your son's sorrowful passion. Have mercy on us and on the whole world. Whole world. Imagine yourself at the foot of the cross with, with Mary and John and the blood of Christ washing over you. He's having, make it a gerund, huh? He's having mercy on me and my children, my spouse, and on the whole world. Be conduits of his mercy. The greater the saint, the greater their experience of God's mercy. That's a strong statement, but I believe it true. The greater the saint, the greater their experience of God's mercy. Other ways, uh, pride, doubting superior's advice or their lead, doubting the Pope sometimes, not exercising the presupposition. Oh, yeah, the presupposition is an Ignatian term where when you struggle with something somebody says, look for the truth of the other's proposition. Don't discount it right away or critique it as false. Don't reject it. Look for the truth of the other's proposition. Sometimes I don't want to look for the truth of it. I'm just like, that was dumb, <laughs> interiorly. I probably don't say that to anybody, but um, I judge it as being wrong, and I don't look for the truth of the other's proposition. And if there's no truth in there, St. Ignatius says, ask them how they mean it. Like, I don't get, okay, I'm looking for the truth of your proposition. I don't see it. How do you mean it? Isn't that nice? And let them explain how they mean it. Like, oh, I see what you mean. Now, maybe there's still no truth in it whatever their ideology is, and then you do correct them. But I don't exercise the presupposition at times because of pride. The contrary, how is Jesus leading me in humility? I'll let you decide. <laughs> I'm not going to talk on that one. In this journey of discerning spirits with St. Ignatius, All of our decisions in life should be based on how we can praise, reverence, and serve God. So in other words, we can't be caught up in clinging to something of the earth. Whenever we're making a decision in life, we have to be detached from things of the world and look at how can we better praise, reverence, and serve God. And if it's a vowed life, whether it's, say, married life or religious life, like, what's the bajis for me? What's the more? Both ways can praise God, but which is closer to the desires of Jesus' heart? That's all that matters, Jesus' heart. Learning to listen to Jesus' heart. He'll manifest to you what his deeper desires are. What kind of ministry are you doing? What kind of people are you helping? Which is closer to the desires of Jesus' heart? This is how we discern. Now, sometimes St. Ignatius says, it's very evident, these are the times of an election. It's very evident that 
the Lord's moving me to do this, like he moved Matthew to follow him. There are a few times in our life where we have this overwhelming experience. We just know without doubt what Jesus wants us to do, what the desires of his heart are. So we do it, hopefully. But secondly, if we don't have that, we move on to the second mode of discernment, which is discerning spirits. Which spirit is moving me to do the lesser service of God? Satan's always going to move me to do the lesser of two goods. And which spirit's moving me to do the greater, the deeper, to tap into my deeper self? That's a key for discerning spirits, for making a choice in your life, any choice in your life, discerning spirits. Now, the world wants to jump to the third way of making discernment. So when you hear Ignatian spirituality explained, they'll often jump the second to the third because it seems easier for us. St. Ignatius says, when your soul's in a tranquil place and you're not clinging to anything, that's a tall order, by the way, use your discursive reasoning. What are the pluses and minuses of doing a certain option, option A? What are the pluses and minuses of doing option D, uh, B? Maybe write those down. What are the pluses and minuses? Maybe you have an option C. And then he says, notice where your reason is more inclined. And then make that your choice and offer that to the Lord and wait for his confirmation. Or he says, you can also use your imagination. What advice would you give somebody else in your exact same situation? That's a really good one. Or if you were on your deathbed, what decision would you rather have made? using your imagination between these two options? Or if you're before the judgment seat of God, which decision would you rather have made? Discerning spirits with St. Ignatius. I'll hand out one more sheet here. And I would like to just give some overall reflections with you. If I could get someone to help. So discerning spirits. St. Ignatius teaches us that as the good spirit and the evil spirit work in contrary ways, uh, so too, if, if you're heading in the wrong direction, if I'm moving from one mortal sin to another mortal sin, don't think that the Holy Spirit's going to be a gentle, soothing influence. A lot of us think the Holy Spirit's always peaceful and gentle. Not true. If I'm going in the wrong direction, he's going to prick my conscience. He's going to, in the 12-step language, huh, help me hit rock bottom. Remember Father Ed Dowling, huh, who worked with Bill Wilson in the forming of the 12 steps, Jesuit priest. So the Holy Spirit, if I'm going in the wrong direction, he's going to let things fall apart. Whereas Satan's going to say, keep up the good work. <laughs> you're doing fine. On the other hand, if you're growing in virtue, the Holy Spirit's going to say, keep on, you're doing fine. He's going to encourage us and strengthen us. And notice in that second rule that the evil spirit will cause anxiety in my life. He will sadden me. He'll place obstacles in the way. Disquiet my soul with false reasons. Wow, that is so true. Notice the source of the anxiety, the anxiety, the disquiet, the sadness. Where is that coming from? That's coming from the wrong spirit. 
this discernment is made, you get to choose which spirit you're going to follow, which standard you're going to be under. Satan's or Jesus's. Let the Holy Spirit come in, and always, as soon as you recognize the source of these evil spirits, you can kick them out. Consolation and desolation. So consolation is this sense of closeness with God, where I feel like I'm growing in faith, hope, and charity. I can see all things in God. Growing in virtue, easy to praise the Lord, even be moved to tears. Wonderful experience. I love consolation. Desolation is the contrary of that. I feel far from the Lord. Might not necessarily be, but I feel like I am. And I'm more inclined towards low and base things. I feel turmoil in the soul. A lack of faith, hope, and charity. Consolation and desolation, all right? Now, the best work currently written on discernment of spirits is Father Timothy Gallagher's Purple Discernment of Spirits. Perhaps you've seen this or read this. They just gave a course on spiritual direction, and we use that as one of our books. Very well done, very careful. Careful analysis of what Ignatius is teaching us here. But I propose that consolation and desolation, so there there are three causes of desolation. The first is I fall into desolation because of my own fault. I'm lazy in my spiritual exercises, okay? But there's a second and a third cause for desolation. And so I propose to you that consolation and desolation are like a toggling, either from this side or this side. I used to say consolation is a feeling of up and desolation is a feeling of far. I don't say that anymore. Because desolation is the way that I'm meant to love God and the way that he wants to love on me. Because the second and third reason for desolation, you'll see in Rule 9 there, is that it strengthens my spiritual muscles when I'm in desolation. The saints say we grow more in dryness than we do when we're in consolation. To stay firm in what we're about. When we're in desolation, we want to to give up easily. But stay firm. Make acts of hope. Consolation will return. Don't make any decisions in a time of desolation. It's so tempting. But don't ever make a decision in desolation. When I'm over here in desolation, don't ever make a decision. Because the primary counselor in your ear is going to be the evil spirit. And he'll always mess you up. Whenever you're in consolation, the primary counselor in your ear is the Holy Spirit. That's when you want to make your decisions in life. It's only when you're in consolation. Consolation or desolation. But when I'm in desolation, the Lord is strengthening me. I'm strengthening my spiritual muscles. I'm being purified. I'm getting to love the giver of the gifts more than I love the gifts. Sometimes I fall in love with the gifts that God gives me. Give me more. (laughs) And I lose track of the giver of the gifts. So it's a purifying experience. And then also it reminds me, it, it trains my mind to remember that all consolation, when I'm in consolation, those gifts are pure gifts from God. It's not because... I have some bravado or something. So, consolation here, desolation here, if you will. And there's a toggling in our life. Sometimes I'm in consolation. Sometimes in desolation. If I'm in consolation, humble myself and remember how weak I feel like when I'm in desolation over here. When I'm in desolation, don't make any decisions. Wait for the Lord to bring you back. Now, two points of 
minor disagreement with Father Gallagher is he says that the evil spirit leads us into desolation. I don't agree with that. I think it's God allows desolation to happen. And he says that by working against the desolation and increasing our prayer and penance, which Ignatius says, that'll get us back into consolation. I don't think we have that power. God will bring us to consolation when he pleases. It's not within our power to move back into consolation. That's God's gift, complete gift. Hopefully you won't be like Mother Teresa, 40 years in desolation. <laughs> but she's a rare saint. No worries there. Consolation and desolation. What a wonderful insight into what goes on in our spiritual life. God wants to love me over here in desolation. So when I'm in desolation, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I don't like it. But I know this is how God is strengthening my spiritual muscles. He's giving me a little resistance. I feel resistance. I'm, where are you, Lord? Like some of those palm, psalms, palms, <laughs> palms with an S. Um, where are you, Lord? Huh? Many psalms of lament. It feels like he's not there, but there's some resistance. It's like with the Syrophoenician woman. Remember where Jesus like kind of pushes back against her and her faith just pushes right through it, right? She's building her spiritual muscles. It's the resistance that helps us build our muscles. I, I don't build my muscle by going up and down like this, my bicep or tricep. I need a barbell. And with the barbell, the resistance will, will build the spiritual muscles. So sometimes God gives us resistance to build our spiritual muscles. Are you with me? Good. And then he also converts my mind to realize that when I am in consolation over here, such a blessing. It's pure gift. It's not because I'm amazing. It's pure gift of God, who loves me a ridiculous amount. I don't know why he loves me so much, but he does. I'll let you read all of those rules. At the end, he has some wonderful images of Satan typically working, because he experienced this in his life. And so he works with us uh, as he uses the image of an, of an evil man, an evil woman, and an evil army chieftain. So he says there, you could have a person who's, who tries to control you. Satan acts like this person trying to control me by nagging me into doing something. Like keep pushing me, puts thoughts in my mind. Because there's three sources of thoughts. My own thoughts, the evil spirit, and the good spirit. So I'm kind of nagged into doing something. It's not that big a deal, Father Anthony. Everybody does this a little bit. It's, at least you're not hurting anyone directly. Wah, 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 you know? So he'll keep nagging me right to the edge of a cliff. And the only way to overcome him is to make a show of strength and say, get out of here. Huh? Go back to hell where you belong. You need to make a show of strength against that nagging evil spirit. You need to have a little zeal. Huh? Or holy violence. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and only the violent have been conquering it by force. Or in the words of Flannery O'Connor, the violent bear it away. If you don't have holy violence, you're not going to heaven. It's that simple. I've got to cut off anything that keeps me from relationship with God. Anything. Any, any of my grabbies, the things that I want to grab to. Including this needy relationship with someone in my life or a family member. Hmm. Got to cut it off. You've got to have holy violence to make it to heaven. Jesus' words. 
The evil spirit also tries to seduce us and he'll send us secret love letters. And as long as he can keep those secret love letters coming to us, we'll eventually fall for his seduction. So St. Ignatius says, you and I need to have some spiritual person, doesn't have to be a priest, but some spiritual person whom you can walk with, who knows how you're tempted. And once you talk about how you're tempted, it'll lose its strength over you. Satan hates it when you talk about what your temptations are because they'll lose their strength. So open up to some spiritual person. That's how you overcome that evil spirit. And lastly, like an evil army chieftain, he'll prowl around our soul, and he's smart enough to try to plunder our soul by attacking us by the weakest side. Huh? We say what a, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. That's where it'll bust first, when you're pulling it between two tractors. So too, Satan will prowl around our soul. He'll always attack me by the weakest point. What's the weakest point? for Father Anthony. That's the point I need to buttress because he likes to come in there. He's no dummy. He's much smarter than I am. But I can buttress and keep him out. I just need to buttress that side. If I have a gossipy side of me, I need to be really careful with that and buttress that side. If I have a misusing way of my telephone or at night or whatnot, I know many families who will have the kids like charge their phones on the dining room table, the family dining room table. Uh, whatever. There's all kinds of things. I have to watch out for hmm, these ways that Satan wants to plunder my fortress. So all of these rules for discerning of spirits help me to be free. And I recognize how Satan's always trying to enchain me. He's trying to get Father Anthony to think about Father Anthony, to be my own center again, huh? to try to control reality, manipulate reality, to worry about things, to live in the future in anxiety, to live in the past in regret, to keep me out of the present where there is God, where I'm just living in, in this amazing grace of being alive, the God of the eternal now. I am who am. You and I have an amazing gift and ability in our freedom to keep Satan out. You don't have to fear Satan. How does the Blessed Mother treat him, huh? We often show her depicted with a statue, praying to God or looking at us with her gentleness, very calm, gentle disposition. And under her feet, you got Satan. Huh? This is the, what they call the Proto-Evangelium, which is in the Genesis. There will come a woman, huh, who will crush your head, Satan. You'll yearn for the heel, to bite the heel as a serpent, but she'll crush your head, and her offspring will crush your head. And so Mary is shown there so peacefully, and then under her feet, she's crushing Satan's head. And so that's how you and I should, should deal with demons, huh? Is God is infinitely greater than his creatures. Satan and all demons are nothing but creatures. They're fallen angels. It's clearly taught by the church. And so God is infinitely, when I get God on my side, <laughs> Satan's like a cockroach. So your and my attitude should also be like Mary's, to pray and to squish. <laughs> you don't even need to look down and say snake. Huh? You just crush him easily like a little cockroach. Huh? All those demons trying to work on me at night or in any time of weakness, whatever.
God gives us that ability for freedom. For freedom, he set us free. And he gave his life for this. St. Ignatius, what a gift he is, huh? What a gift he is to the church to teach us freedom. Freedom in Christ. Freedom to love. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Three minutes of questions, if anybody has any questions that would be relevant for all. Two minutes of questions. No, just kidding. Yes. Satan attacking, the question is, can Satan attack us in our strongest points? Well, Satan knows that he, if he can't get Father Anthony, for instance, from doing good, he'll actually get behind me, and he'll push me forward at breakneck speed, to where I'm doing too much, and I'm going to crash, and you're going to read about me in the newspapers. So his strength of being generous is good, but he'll, he'll exacerbate that. On the farm growing up, we had a uh, herbicide called 2,4-D. The way 2,4-D works is it causes such rapid cell division of the cells that carry the water and the nutrients into the plant that when you have a big bull thistle, you put 2,4-D on it, spray it on there, it'll cause the plant to explode interiorly. So he'll take my gifts, but he'll exaggerate them. Satan will, there's no moderation for Satan, huh? any evil spirit. And my strength becomes my weakness in that case. So certainly, uh, certainly he can, he can work to um, exacerbate a good to where it's out of, out of place. I become so talkative that I don't, I'm not able to listen anymore. Huh? Or I have compassion, what a great thing. But I'm so compassionate with you, I would never challenge you. I'm way too soft, way too gentle. I, would, I hate tension at all costs, so I'm just going to be nice. What do you want me to say? I'll say it to you. What's the problem? I don't love you enough. If I loved you more, I would challenge you. Jesus is challenging at times, because he loves. And we don't like to challenge our children or others too much because they wouldn't like it. And I think a deeper love is going to be a challenging love. And so compassion, very good. Gentleness, very good. Sensitivity, very good. But like it's so strong that I don't want, he'll like exacerbate that so much that I'm just a really, really gentle priest. And I don't want anybody not to like me, so I'm going to say the soft things. That doesn't sound like me though, does it? God bless you. That's a good question. All right. Well, I hope to see some of you tomorrow. Bring your sleds. We'll have a sledding party afterwards. I will be here for sure. I like driving in snow, actually. So um, thank you for coming. I hope this is beneficial for you. Pray about it. Yeah. Thank you.